welcome back to the Spartan Street Podcast. This is episode 15 by Kyrgyz, the Wolf Worker. The story of the quasi-mythical lawgiver has been one adopted by a great many ancient civilizations over time. Coming out of a distant, barely remembered past to call order out of chaos, defeat insurmountable odds, and quell civil unrest, these figures are most revered by their apparent descendants. The Mosaic Doctrine, handed down by Moses to Yahweh's chosen people after their exodus from Pharaonic Egypt is a prime example. Romulus and Numa Pompilius, combining to respectively adorn the Romans with their militaristic and religious practices are another. One much closer to our focus is Solon of Athens, who although more likely to have existed than the other three, nonetheless had a fantastic list of deeds attributed to him that are hard to reconcile in just one man's lifestyle. The Spartans had Lycurgus. Who cancelled the debts? Who divided the land up into equal plots? Who banned gold, silver and luxury? Who instituted the agoge and the training of girls? Who banned trade in anything save war and enforced nightly meals in communal mess halls? For the Spartans, the answer to these and many other questions was simple. Lycurgus. Plutarch famously opens his life of Lycurgus with the following words. Concerning Lycurgus, the lawgiver, in general, nothing can be said which is not disputed, since indeed, there are different accounts of his birth, his travels, his death, and above all, of his works as lawmaker and statesman. For poor old Plutarch, writing nearly a millennia after the prophet's supposed death, sifting through untold amounts of conflicting, processed and capricious information, it must have seemed as if there were multiple Lycurguses. He, in fact, says as much in his writings. Whether a mortal, a hero or a god, it is impossible to tell from the ancient sources, and it seems even the Olympian gods struggled with defining him also. Herodotus records a Delphic oracle received by Lycurgus prior to his efforts at reforming Sparta, and it reads as follows. O great Lycurgus, that has come to my beautiful dwelling, dearest of Zeus, and to all who sit in the halls of Olympus, whether to hail you a god, I know not, or only a mortal, but my hope is strong that you will prove to be a god like Kyrgyz. This episode will be tasked with attempting to resolve some of the ambiguity around the man's supposed existence. Some authors propose that his life took place in the 9th or even the 10th century BCE, well and truly within the Dark Ages. Others pose an 8th or 7th century dating, more reasonable to be sure, but still hard to fathom considering the earliest mention of him is by Herodotus in the 5th century. Of the works prior to this time that we have extant, either complete or fragmentary, his name is unmentioned and his legend is silent. We even have some surviving works by Spartan poets dating to the 7th century which are amazing, but say nothing of a figure like Lycurgus, considering his later preponderance on the story of Laconia. Over the coming episodes, we'll set in their proper place many of the events attributed to the man, it will become obvious over time that much of the myth is simply impossible as we slowly piece together the expansion and development of those four villages nestled on the west bank of the Erotus River. I think we'll start with an overview of his life and deeds as laid out by Herodotus and Plutarch. Once we have that tapestry before us, we can work away at some of the holes in the narrative and see the reality beyond the cloth of legend. Hopefully afterwards we can assign Lycurgus his proper position in Spartan history, one almost more aligned with the heroic age, but one very much real for the classical Spartans. His birth, 
unlike other founding fathers, was not one shrouded in mysticism and whimsicality. There was no suckling at the teat of a wolf or ride in a reed basket into the waiting arms of an Egyptian princess for Lycurgus. Plutarch tells us that he was born the second son to a second wife of the Europonted king Unimus, making him the great-grandson of that house's eponymous king, Europon. This also makes him 11 generations removed from Heracles, and therefore, like all other descendants of the two royal houses, one of the Heraclidae. This second wife, Lycurgus's mother, has been recorded as being one Dionassa. It's a composite name comprising of two ancient Greek words, Dios, for heavenly, and Anassa, for queen. Translated, it means either heavenly queen or queen of the heavens. Interestingly for our subject's semi-divine heroic status, the word Anassa wasn't used in the time of the Iron Age to denote a queen but comes straight out of the Bronze Age. In Mycenaean Linear B, Anassa did indeed mean queen, just as Wanax meant king. Unless we take it on authority that Plutarch recorded this woman's name over a thousand years after she lived, it would be safe to assume that the person who recorded it was trying to give Lycurgus some ancient and authentic lineage suitable to his story. Nevertheless, the next thing recorded about the man was that he inherited the throne upon his elder brother's death at a time of extreme lawlessness in Sparta that had resulted in a reasonably quick turnover of kings. It is here that Lycurgus's nature of fairness and propriety first asserted themselves, as it came to pass that his sister-in-law was soon discovered to be pregnant to his now-dead brother. He declared immediately that should the offspring be male, he would step down and allow the rightful heir to inherit the throne. With that possibility in mind, he removed the trappings of office, such as they were, and took up a caretaker role in the administration of the burgeoning Spartan state. For reasons that aren't clear, the former queen, and quite possibly the bearer of the city's future king, made overtures to Lycurgus in secret. She proposed to destroy the babe in the womb, if on his word he would marry her once he was king again. Although he despised the woman, he feared greatly for the prize she held within and instead acceded to her wishes. Matching perfidy, he told her not to risk her health by taking drugs to abort the fetus, but that when the time came, he would do away with the child personally. Placated, she carried the child to full term, and when Lycurgus heard that she had begun to deliver the baby, he sent many attendants to the suite. Their orders were simple. If the child was male, they were to bring the boy directly to him, but if a girl, it was to be left with the mother. A callous intention to our modern ears, but certainly one in keeping with the age. All was well though. A boy was born, and the waiting proxies swiftly removed him to the dining hall where Lycurgus sat with some of the chief magistrates of the city. Upon presenting it to him, he took the newborn in his arms and said with great joy to those seated with him, A king is born to you, O men of Sparta. He then laid it down in the awaiting royal seat and named the child Harilos, which means the people's joy, as all in attendance were filled with admiration of Lycurgus and wonder at the arrival of their new king. Now fully renouncing any claim to the throne, the wolf worker ruled in technicality for a brief eight months in total. There were many in the city that were devoted to so upright a man and praised him as the custodian of the future king, lauding him as regent. Unfortunately, and it is the curse of mankind, there were others that sought to further themselves by slandering one who was their better in every virtue and every deed. Headed by the kinsman of the former queen, who was herself displeased at being tricked out of power, 
they represented a powerful faction indeed. Her brother, one Leonidas, boldly accused Lycurgus of trickery and foul play, claiming, despite events that had already transpired to the contrary, that the regent sought the very throne he'd stepped down from, that before long he would kill the boy king and reclaim the title as his own. Knowing what the king's mother was capable of, he took the threat seriously and was fearful that some harm would come to the boy and he would be implicated in its genesis. Seeing himself as the possible catalyst of violence against young Harillus, Lycurgus resolved to leave Sparta until such time as the boy grew to manhood and ruled in his own right. The Sparta he left behind was one of chaos and regicide. Both Herodotus and Pausanias give genealogical lines of the Spartan royal houses that date right back to Heracles himself. Though differing slightly, they are more or less cogent and give a reasonable indication of the period we are looking at. If we take as a finishing point for the Dark Age the first Olympic Games in 776 BCE, then Harillus was the first Europonted king to rule in the Archaic Age. His reign is recorded loosely as 780 through to 750 BCE. Historically attributed to his reign is the destruction of the border town Aegis, located between Laconia and Arcadia, north of Sparta. Archaeological dating of the destruction fits with the period and is possibly the first factual detection of aggressive Spartan expansion in that city's recorded history. Some scholars have suggested that King Harillus was the first, along with his aged king counterpart, to be joint ruler of Lacedaemon, but more on that at a later time. Regardless, we can reasonably assume that these events transpired at the very dawn of recorded Spartan history. The first stop on Lycurgus's sabbatical was the island of Crete. Here he met with many of the distinguished rulers of that place and adopted what was, by his estimation, convenient to the greatness of nations. One person in particular whom he made acquaintance of was to have a great impact on the lawmaker and Sparta herself. Talis is a mercurial character in early Greek history, part poet, part musician, and part philosopher. His influence on archaic Laconia can't be overstated. Plutarch says that he first travelled to Sparta at the request of Lycurgus, who believed that his style of lyric poetry would assist with the fractured nature of that city's inhabitants at the time. Once there, Tullius founded a new school of music and his style of pian and ode became the standard for later Spartan works. Primarily focusing on obedience to the laws and harmony of the state, the measured rhythms imparted tranquility to those who listened to them, softening fiery dispositions. Presumably, Tullius helped calm the tempestuous nature of the Spartiates and helped prepare them for the eventual return of Lycurgus. Believe it or not, despite being renowned for their warlike nature, Music was an intrinsic part of Spartan culture, and without their devotion to song and dance, they would not have been nearly as successful on the battlefield. But more too, on that another time. Having gleaned from the Cretans what he could, Lycurgus next took ship for the Ionian coast of Anatolia. We are told that here he wished to compare the Doric style of rule primarily practiced on Crete with that of the Ionic cities of western modern Turkey. Among other things, he is credited here with being the first mainland Greek to truly appreciate the works of Homer. Antiquity believes strongly that Homer was from that region, due mostly to the fact his works were composed in part the Ionic and Aeolic dialects which were also spoken in the same area. Lycurgus is charged with compiling the disparate works and introducing them to the mainland, as he saw in them many worthy lessons of discipline and politics. Plutarch even tells us that he visited Egypt as well, 
where at the time they practiced a separation of the military class, something the later Spartans were well known for as well. However, at this point the author puts flight to any suggestion that Lycurgus traversed the Iberian Peninsula and far off India as the information came from poor sources and possible rumour mongers. This type of pilgrimage for knowledge is a common theme in many foundational heroic stories. It's almost as if the lands these prophets came out of are so riddled with corruption and decadence, the situation so unsalvageable that only an injection of foreign reason can save the day. Back home, despite the release of Talis's greatest hits, things were not going well for the Lacedaemonians. The people had no faith in their kings, whom apart from the title were really no better or worse than their subjects. They needed revolution, they needed a lawmaker, and they beseeched for Lycurgus' return. Even the kings themselves sought his return, believing that their situation could only improve considering how insipid the royal power had become. Plutarch describes his resolve in returning home and the work that must be done there with a wonderful bit of metaphoric prose that I'll relate now. He was convinced that a partial change of the laws would be of no avail whatsoever, but that he must proceed as a physician would with a patient who was debilitated and full of all sorts of diseases. He must reduce and alter the existing temperament by means of drugs and purges and introduce a new and different regime. It was with this idea in mind that Lycurgus made his return journey to Sparta, but he stopped first at Delphi to ratify his ideas with Apollo and receive the god's divine wisdom. This is when he received the Delphic utterance I mentioned earlier that proclaimed him as more god than man. Once back in Sparta, he first took into confidence men who were partisan to his cause and bade them work with him in rectifying the state. They bought into his designs and in turn brought into the scheme more loyal men and a nucleus for upheaval formed around Lycurgus. When he believed the time had come, he sent 30 of his chief allies into the Agora at first light to strike fear into the opposing party. At the advent of the coup, King Harillus, now a grown man, first believed that the vicious lies told of Lycurgus and his designs on the throne were true, that he had indeed returned to take back the position of king he had given up so many years before. Fleeing to the temple to Athena of the Brazen House, Harillus took up sanctuary there and pleaded for mercy. Lycurgus and his men came to the place of his refuge, and with truthful words calmed the king and made overtures for his safety. Thus, coaxed out, the king joined the party for revolution, and added the legitimacy needed for Lycurgus's planned reforms. He took a top-down approach, and started with the governance of the city. Seemingly as best as we can tell, the diarchy model of rule was in place at that time, and the people as such had no actual representation outside of their collective body. Lycurgus fixed this by creating the Gerousia, or Council of Elders, a body of 30 men, 28 of whom had to be 60 years of age or over to qualify, with the last two positions made up by the kings, regardless of their age. Election was made with a claim from the citizen assembly, with the name shouted at the loudest being the ones elected to the council. An oligarchic-styled government, nomination to this body was most probably restricted to the aristocratic class of Spartans, and was for life. The Gerousia had two major functions. First, they had the right of pre-deliberation, to debate any motion that was to be put forward to the citizen assembly and could also prevent any motion they deemed unworthy from being passed. Secondly, and more importantly, the right to try any Spartan on crimes against the state, including the kings. A supreme court of sorts, if you will. A senate in all but name, 
It was Lycurgus's hope that this new interface between people and kings would help stabilise the government and its tendency to vacillate between tyranny and democracy. Just so, the 28 senators would hopefully take the side of the kings if the people were swayed too much towards democracy. And should the kings become overly tyrannical, they would side with the people to restore the equilibrium. Plutarch says that this measure saved Sparta the fate of her Dorian neighbours, Messenia and Argos, who did away with their Heracletic kings. Next on his agenda was a levelling of the playing field in relation to the wealth and holdings of the citizens. At the time, there was a great disparity of both, and this led to disputes, factional violence, and jealousy of thy neighbour. He convinced them that a redistribution of land was needed, and had them lump all Spartan territory into one lot. This he then divided into 9,000 equal parcels and gave one to each male citizen. The idea was that rather than seeking power through extensive holdings, it would be sought through virtue and virtue alone. He then divided up all of the conquered territories into 30,000 lots and distributed them to the perioikoi, or dwellers around, so they too would have a means for subsistence. It is said that whilst walking the fields during an autumnal harvest, Lycurgus remarked, All Laconia looks like a family estate, newly divided among many brothers. Regardless of landed possessions, this step was only a half measure if true equality was the desired outcome. What good was having the same amount of territory of your neighbour if he was still enjoying elegant banquets, the finest wines, and dancing Laconian hounds whilst you had but the poorest gruel, vinegar, and a lazy pig? Envy breeds contempt, and contempt breeds violence and discord. To tackle the discrepancy of luxury, Lycurgus first tried to remove all the movable, valuable property from the Spartan homes. Seeing that they were disinclined to part with their precious objects, he enacted a series of laws banning all gold and silver monies from currencies. Replacing it with coins made of iron, quenched in wine to make the metal brittle and unusable for any other purpose. He assigned such trivial value to this new coinage that even to purchase the most basic of items, you would need such a quantity that it had to be transported by a train of oxen. Slowly this had the desired effect, as over time traders stopped coming to Sparta, as none wanted massive amounts of useless iron as payment for services and goods rendered. Moreover, it had the added bonus of reducing all forms of crime, for who would accept such a bribe, or bother robbing his neighbour when there was nothing of value to take? This enactment did so much to keep Sparta from decadence. Those who had the advantage of larger and greater possessions could find no public outlet for that wealth, but instead it sat idle and decayed. Today, we still refer to someone living in assumed austerity to be living a Spartan lifestyle. Perhaps Lycurgus was aware of the upshot incurred by removing opulence from society. Perhaps not. Either way, it created a class of highly skilled artisans within the community. Whether or not this was the work of a mythical lawgiver, the Laconian goods discovered through archaeology are of the highest quality and show that just as the warriors were preeminent on the field, their perioikic tradesmen were equally renowned in ancient times for their craft. His third act was designed to completely dissolve any remaining inequality left after his earlier work. It really was the work of a true genius when he denoted that all male citizens have to dine communally in messals, or sisitia, as the Spartans called them. The thought being that despite, or in spite of the laws enacted thus far, the perfidious element of the community would still be able to surreptitiously relax in the comfort of their luxurious homes while being waited on hand and foot by servants, leading to bodies soft and useless, 
unaccustomed to war and privation. Forcing the rich man to dine with the poor man, and there could be no playing foul by enjoying the fruits of wealth at home and then arriving at the hall to partake in the communal fare, as all were observed and those who didn't partake of an equal share were reviled for their weakness. Each hall was assigned to fifteen men, who from their own produce had to furnish the larder for the common meal. The monthly contribution consisted as follows. A bushel of barley meal, eight gallons of wine, five pounds of cheese, and two and a half pounds of figs. The fare could be supplemented by any game hunted or whatever seasonal fruits were available, and an inability to supply the required amount could and would jeopardise qualification to the mess hall, and therefore citizenship. All meals were required to be had in this shared fashion, with only three exceptions that were typically Spartan. The hunt, religious sacrifice, or war. Having had the last vestige of privilege removed, the indignant wealthy would take no more and rose up against the lawmaker and his party. They attacked him in the Agora and proceeded to stone him like a common criminal. He had no choice but to flee the scene, but he was overtaken by a youth named Alcanda. As Lycurgus turned to defend himself, Alcanda struck him across the face with a staff, putting out one of his eyes. The sight of this great man, hand clutched to his face with blood pouring from between his fingers, took the fire of rage out of his pursuers. They raised him up, and in memory of the event, Lycurgus inaugurated a temple to Athena Optilitus, which was the Dorian word for I. Accordingly, he also banned staffs from being carried within public spaces, which considering the missing eye makes pretty good sense to me. All of these reforms, some gained from travel, others from the Pythia, were known as the Great Retra, or Proclamation in English. It formed the cornerstone of Spartan law and custom. Although of an archaic, mystical beginning, they were nonetheless practiced down into the periods of classical Greek history we are familiar with. King Leonidas, who bravely headed the Greek resistance at Thermopylae, adhered strictly to its code. He and the other Laconian warriors laid down their lives by its precepts in the face of insurmountable odds, ideals so potent that it powered the Spartan mirage into the future where we still gaze with awe upon it. Lycurgus is recorded as being responsible for a great many more retra in his time. Prohibition of written laws was enforced, it was said, so that everyone could live by the verbal code and not read and rewrite it when convenient. He outlawed making war against the same people too often, lest the opponents learn the Spartans' art of war and become their masters. He forbade citizens from the practice of anything save war and regulated marriages as well. Instituting a type of state-sponsored polygamy and polyandry with the ultimate goal to produce more males for service in the army. Education received reform, with both boys and girls receiving rigorous physical and mental exercise to provide on the one hand strong men, and on the other strong mothers. A famous anecdote states that a foreign woman remarked to Gorgo, the wife of King Leonidas, You Spartan women are the only ones in Greece who rule their men. To which the queen replied, Yes, for we are the only ones that give birth to real men. If you look up the word laconic in the Oxford English Dictionary, it will be described as imparting meaning with very few words. This measured, clipped form of speech was something the classical Spartans were famous for, and this modality was also attributed to Lycurgus. For example, when questioned why he offered such small and inexpensive sacrifices to the gods, Lycurgus replied, So we are always able to honour them. Much later, but famously, when King Philip 
the father of Alexander, sent a message to the Spartans, saying, If I invade Laconia, you will be destroyed, never to rise again. The Spartans replied simply, If. He also declared that the rigid discipline imposed by his laws could be relaxed slightly during times of war. That way the people would seek conflict as a type of holiday and would thoroughly enjoy themselves. This was best described on the third and final day of Thermopylae, when all was lost and all of the allies had been sent home. Only a handful of Spartans remained, bloodied, beaten and proud. A Persian scout who spied their camp reported back to Xerxes with alarm that rather than quaking with fear, Leonidas and his men were laughing, taking their breakfast, exercising and oiling their hair in preparation of the Persians' final assaults. Remember, they were on holiday. His influence extended beyond Laconia, and along with an Elian named Iphitos, they together founded the first Olympic truce in 776 BCE. This protected the state of Alice, within which Olympia was located from attack and provided safe conduct for athletes and spectators to travel to and from the Games. Finally, in opposition to most other Greek city-states, he permitted burials within the city limits and allowed much pomp and fairfare to attend the events. That way the people would become accustomed to death and moreover, see what respect their ancestors were sent off with and thus hope to emulate it themselves at the time of their own passing. After all of this reform, he set about solidifying the laws into perpetuity. Gathering all of the people before him, they were instructed that all had been done in accordance with the wishes of Phoebus Apollo and that adherence to the law would result in the prosperity and virtue of the state. But something of great importance was still yet to be done and in order to bring it about, he must first consult the Oracle of Delphi. Before leaving, he made the entire citizen assembly swear that they would obey the laws without alteration until his return. So sworn, the people watched their saviour leave Sparta. Arriving at Delphi and consulting the Pythia once more, Apollo told him that the laws he had enacted were good and would ensure the city's eternal fame. Having now achieved all he had set out to do, Lycurgus had one final task and it would be his greatest gift to his people. Knowing they were sworn to obey the Retra until his return, he resolved never to do so, and in that way, never free the Spartans from their promise to him. He'd already given an eye to enforce a revolution of reform. Now, he would give his life to see those changes cemented for generations to come. Plutarch offers many variant tales of his self-sacrifice. The one favoured by the author has Lycurgus simply stop eating, eventually succumbing to the agonisingly slow death of starvation. He left instructions that his emaciated corpse was to be thrown on a funeral pyre with the ashes scattered in the breeze. Now, with no corpse to speak of, his remains could never be returned to Sparta and her pious people never free to break their promise to the legendary lawgiver. Okay, that was quite a gallop all in all. Just reading through the litany of Lycurgus' achievements makes me feel like a little lie down somewhere quiet. However, I'll press on now and focus on establishing the sources for the Lycurgan legend and debunk some of the outlander's attributions within it. I've used Plutarch's life of Lycurgus almost exclusively here for two reasons. Firstly, his referencing is fantastic, and secondly, because his biography is a distillation of all the sources we have extant, and many we don't. Without his diligence, and he cites no fewer than 50 other authors, we wouldn't have anything approximating a full narrative for Lycurgus available for us today. However, his parallel lives which compared famous Greeks with Romans 
was written in the first century of our era, and thus far removed from the Sparta of legend. In Plutarch's time, the city was little more than a tourist attraction for elite Roman travellers. He even mentions visiting the place, where he was entertained by the ritual flogging of Spartan youths for the amusement of the onlookers. A stage mockery of the Agogo, it seems almost a blessing that a Herulian invasion of Greece in the 3rd century effectively wiped Sparta off the map. Our earliest extant source for the lawgiver is given by Herodotus, the father of history. Published in 425 BCE, his history still looms some three to four hundred years after our subject's supposed life. Xenophon, a famous Athenian general, philosopher and author, wrote a detailed treatise on the constitution of the Spartans in the early 4th century BCE, which couldn't help but contain numerous mentions of Lycurgus. Xenophon was as thoroughly pro-Spartan as any Athenian in history, Living there for a time, he even put his sons through the Agoge. Aristotle too spoke reasonably highly of Lycurgus, considering he wasn't the most generous author when it comes to praise. The reality we see in the sources is an explosion of written material relating to the wolf worker around the 5th and 4th centuries BCE, but nothing before and nothing new after. For 120 years, from the Battle of Thermopylae in 480 BCE through to the Battle of Leuctra in 371, the Spartans dominated Mediterranean history in the region. Who were these people that adhered to such a strange doctrine? Who taught them to live and die in such a manner? These are questions I believe that the Spartans of the day didn't have firm answers to. It was remarked by an Athenian at the turn of the 5th century, after having travelled to Sparta, that their cultural memory went back as far as the grandfather of the king Cleomenes, but no further. This king ruled from 519 BCE, so we can assume safely the Spartans had no real cultural record before the turn of the 6th century. Personally, I think that the legend of Lycurgus sprung up as a result of the amazed wonder the rest of Greece was in regarding the warriors of Laconia. In lieu of written records, of which they had none, the Spartans gradually accreted more and more of their history to one man. We can see another example of this type of myth-making in Rome, when in 390 BCE, Gallic invaders sacked and burned the city to the ground, Nothing of her prior history remained. The surviving Romans reinvented their founding, and themselves for that matter, attributing their mythical beginnings to seven kings. The second king, Numa, in particular, whom Plutarch compares to Lycurgus, was responsible for the Byzantine religious practices of the Romans, among other things. And just so, these great cities, Sparta and Rome, needed an almost magical past to explain their respective preeminence. I don't mean to suggest that Lycurgus wasn't a figure very much on the minds of the Spartans when Herodotus released his great work. The mere fact that the historian recounts two different versions of the trip to Delphi to receive the great retra shows that there are at least two different narratives to choose from, and perhaps more at the time. By Plutarch's time, there are more than 50 different authors he's referencing, admitting that most of the stories contradict each other. My bet is on Lycurgus having at the very least an oral history dating back as far as 800 BCE, or the close of the Dark Age. Over time, the legend self-perpetuated and developed with its transmission. I've posed a similar development of the Homeric epics in the past, and the formula shares a common thread with other such legends. Before I dive down that rabbit hole, let's first look at some of his supposed retra in detail now, and chronologically speaking, put them in their proper place. In Plutarch's Life of Lycurgus, the subject's first act of reform is the formation of a council of elders. Of all the things we've looked at, this seems the most likely to be of a more ancient origin. 
there were nearly a thousand separate city-states across the ancient Greek world. By around 600 BCE, nearly all had abolished any form of hereditary kingship, all that is, save Sparta, who had a rule of two kings. It's likely that the removal of these rulers was avoided by a concession to the people with greater representation by a body outside, though including the kingship. Lycurgus's life coincides, so the story goes, with a period of great internal strife and would have been something similarly experienced by other Greek cities, where they set up oligarchies, tyrannies, and proto-democracies, the Spartans hung on to their kings, though watered down their power by planting them within an extended body. Whether or not the council dates back to the beginnings of the 8th century, a fragment of the Spartan poet Tataeus certainly shows that by his time, mid-7th century, the council was well established. It reads as follows. The beginning of council shall belong to the God-honoured kings, whose care is the delightsome city of Sparta and to men of elder birth. There is also a little bit of evidence for the creation of this council around the time purported for Lycurgus. About 800 BCE, on the island of Thera, modern-day Santorini, a colony of Spartans established itself there on the 360-metre-high Mount Mesavorna. It has been theorised that this diaspora was caused by extreme political unrest back in Sparta, with the disaffected parties reaching a settlement of exile, with this city, also called Thera, being the end result. Perhaps the Gerousia was the final piece to quell the civil unrest at the time. We'll be looking at this facet in more detail in the next episode, so I'll leave it alone for the moment. His second act was a division of land into 9,000 equal parcels for the homoioi citizens of Sparta and another 30,000 for the perioikoi. Setting the date of Lycurgus at around the last quarter of the 9th and the first quarter of the 8th century BCE, such a division would be impossible for several reasons. To begin with, Sparta was still, at this time, merely four conglomerate villages abutting the Erotus River. Amicle to the south was possibly not even incorporated as of yet, and nor was there any other outward expansion or conquest during this period. Their destruction of the village Aegis occurred around this time as well, and perhaps expanded control of the territory slightly northwards, but not to any great degree. There simply would not have been enough land to divide into 9,000 self-sufficient lots. Furthermore, if even at this remote period they practiced a form of indentured servitude, it was in no way sufficient to separate the warrior citizens from manual labour to devote themselves to full-time war. Indeed, the 30,000 plots for the dwellers around, or perioikoi, is an outlandish figure, and more suited to a time centuries later when the Spartans controlled approximately 8,000 square kilometres of territory, the largest such swathe in Greece. Twice as large, in fact, as the next, Syracuse in Sicily, at 4,000 square kilometres. Scholars suggest that if a division ever occurred, it was during the second quarter of the 7th century. At this time, the Spartans exercised hegemony over the entirety of Laconia and most of Messenia too, a suitable area to divide so vigorously. They had recently put down a revolt by Messenian helots, which is known as the Second Messenian War. With their Argive allies, the former slaves initially defeated a Spartan army in battle and came very near to winning their freedom. Through some military reform, the Laconians were able to turn the tide and eventually put the former slaves under the yoke once more. It's believed, and I agree, that this close scrape with fate caused massive revolutions within Sparta. They now oppressed their slave caste with a bondage so heavy and extreme that for almost another 200 years they had not the will nor the chance to rise up again. A division of land at this time seems apt, 
to free up the men from the need to work the land and thus forming the first full-time professional fighting force of Greece. A poet of Lesbos, named Tapanda, wrote the following about Sparta. The spear points of young men blossomed there, along with the clear-sounding muse and justice in the wide streets. Written around 650 BCE, this seems to line up nicely with a different Sparta, an anomaly amongst Greek city-states. Interestingly, long after Sparta's defeat at the Battle of Leuctra in 371 and subsequent decline, King Aegis IV attempted to reintroduce the city's ancient customs. At around 245 BCE, he initiated a cancellation of debts and a redivision of landed property as by this time all land was controlled by a handful of powerful families. Largely unpopular by the elites, the king was betrayed and assassinated for his efforts. There would be no second golden age for Sparta. The removal of gold and silver monies, replacing them with an iron currency, seems an anachronism in the extreme due to the fact that coins before 625 BCE are non-existent in the archaeological record. If we look at the Homeric epics, value was always offered in kind, whether horses, tripods, or other types of goods. Homer, who was writing perhaps a little after the supposed life of Lycurgus, was impressing his own era's method of transaction into the past, and therefore a fair reference for the early parts of the 8th century BCE. That there was at some stage a reform relating to wealth and luxury in Sparta can be of no doubt, as certainly by the time of the Persian Wars the Spartans were famous for their austere lifestyle. Presumably this move towards austerity occurred at around the same time as the division of land, helping to focus the male citizenry on war, and war alone. Lycurgus's introduction of the Iliad and Odyssey to Greece too is just a nice bit of garnish to his legend. Even at their earliest creation, those works were some 50 years after the first Olympic Games in 776. Case closed. Talius of Crete moving to Sparta and founding a school of music at the request of Lycurgus must also have some serious doubt cast upon it. His school was known as the second school of its kind in Sparta, the first being founded by Terpanda of Lesbos, who was active before Talis. Both of these poets lived during the 7th century and heavily influenced the famous Spartan poets Tertius and Alcman. Along with the revolution of the state due to the hostile, enslaved population of Messenian helots, this period coincides with the tradition of war poetry, of which some are still extant. I plan to do an episode on this Spartan poetry in due course, but suffice to say for now, any indication for Lycurgus having been responsible for this musical revolution are about a hundred years too early at best. It seems that most of the deeds attributed to Lycurgus are more in fitting with the period after the Second Mycenaean War and with a society gearing up for a permanent war footing. State-sponsored education of boys and girls, the one for war and the other for the rearing of strong children, the common mess halls designed to not only level the playing field but to build a culture of camaraderie, the polygamy and polyandry, an attempt to produce as many citizens as possible in a population constantly depleted by the many wars fought for dominance over the Peloponnese. It should be clear by now that if indeed there was a single Lycurgus, it was impossible for him to live during the time of King Harillus and be responsible for all that he was acclaimed for. Possibly, as Plutarch writes, there were several men of the same name whose lives were compressed together due to expediency. What do I think? Well, I'm glad you asked, as I always have my own hypothesis and this time is no different. I believe Lycurgus was an anthropomorphism of the god Apollo, the deity had many epithets in ancient Greece. Most popular was Phoebus, which meant bright. But only slightly less popular, especially amongst the Dorians, is wolfish. Translated, 
Lycurgus means the wolf worker, which is telling in and of itself. Compound that fact with the Spartans receiving their laws in the form of retra, or holy proclamations from the Pythia of Delphi, who was herself the mouthpiece of Apollo, and the case is starting to look pretty good for Lycurgus being an avatar of the god-given form. The Spartans had a very special relationship with the Delphic Oracle, a bond that began right around the time of Lycurgus' life. I mentioned earlier their attack and subsequent destruction of the town of Aegis. The Cassus Belli, for the conquest, was received in the form of an oracle from the Pythia. Delivered to King Harillus and his counterpart of the Agiad line, King Archelaus, who ruled Sparta jointly from 775 to 760 BCE. O great Lycurgus, that has come to my beautiful dwelling, dearest of Zeus, and to all who sit in the halls of Olympus, whether to hail you a god I know not, or only a mortal, but my hope is strong that you will prove to be a god, Lycurgus. Professor Paul Cartledge suggests that we should, and I agree wholeheartedly, look at this utterance of the god in a more prosaic sense that it was the Spartans themselves that received the oracle, wondering how they should worship the figure of Lycurgus, as semi-divine or wholly so. The devil is in the ambiguity of the above quote. It suggests strongly that even at this remote period of their history, public memory had grown decidedly dim when it came to the wolf worker. Like the Homeric epics, it isn't truly important whether or not a figure like Lycurgus existed. What's important is what the Spartans themselves believed and it's clear that those brave souls at Thermopylae who stood when most were for submission believed in Lycurgus's precepts. Their death's rattle was the birth cry of Western civilization and all that came after. Semantics aside, that is an undeniable truth. That's all for today folks. I hope you enjoyed the insight as much as I did. Next on the cards will be episode 16 and part 3 of my Jason and the Golden Fleece retelling which will drop on Sunday the 18th of October. Your regular transmission will resume on Sunday the 1st of November with episode 17, Early Spartan Expansion and Unification. When last we left the narrative, Sparta was a collection of four villages on the banks of the Eurotas that had achieved political unity under the two royal houses of Heracletic families. Their destiny had just begun to call and we'll look at the absorption of Amicli to the south and the unification of Dorian religious practices with those indigenous to the area. I'd be honoured if you'd join me on the journey. Until then, dear listeners, take good care and speak soon. Please check out my website, spartanhistorypodcast.com, where I have extra information, photos and maps of the areas discussed. You can find me on Twitter at Spartan underscore history and on Facebook too at Spartan History Podcast. If you like this episode and are keen to hear more, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you catch your prods from and leave a review. See you next time.